When I was growing up, a big, big highlight of my year was BB Camp. The 12th week, we headed off as a boys' brigade, and we went to all kinds of parts of the country. Sometimes we went up towards the north coast. Sometimes it was down around the Mourns near Kilkeel or somewhere like that. And the biggest job when we headed off to BB Camp was setting up the marquee. And so there would have been a team of people would have gone the night before to try and get that job done. And it was the hub of everything that went on at our BB camp. It's where we ate together. It's where we worshiped together. And, and we were taught from God's word together. It's where everybody socialized. And it was very much the hub of the camp. And when we were setting it up, and during the course of the week, one of the things that you always had to watch out for were the pegs, or really they were stakes, the big, big, long metal stakes that were used to keep the marquee in place. And everyone, without exception, in their years at BB camp ended up with skin shins because at nighttime, when you weren't really paying attention and you were running over to the marquee or coming away from the marquee, you always scraped your leg against these big, massive, lethal stakes that were in the ground. The solution was to get from the tuck shop the tins of Coke and everything else and try and put those over the stakes to stop this happening. But still, someone cut their leg during the course of the week. Now, tonight, we have been reading together another amazing story from the book of Judges. And you could describe it as a story of the lethal tent peg. I don't think there has been a tent peg more lethal than the one that we read about tonight in Judges chapter 4. And as we go through this story this evening, for those of you who were here last Sunday evening and we were looking at, at Judges chapter 3 together, please don't be surprised by the similarities between the story that we read last week and what it is that we're hearing from God's Word tonight, because this is history repeating itself, and there is a recurring pattern to the book that is part of the purpose of this book of Judges. And running right the way through this are these two stories that the book of Judges, like so much of the Old Testament, is a story of the people's failure, just how much they got it wrong but the great story, the big story that must not be missed as we work our way through the book of Judges or any part of the Old Testament is that ultimately it is a story of God's faithfulness. And we were able to see that last week in chapter 3, a dramatic story with some guts and gore along the way. And I had a chat with some of you afterwards and over the past week about that story and, and about all the stuff that happened there and just how horrific some of that was. But hopefully we got past the guts and gore as we thought about that story last Sunday evening. And then as we reflected on it in our own time, and we were able to see that really the big lesson of chapter 3, which is summed up back in chapter 3, verse 15, is that God loves to save His people. So, to what you see going on in chapter 3 is that the people cried out for help. Help us, Lord. And He gave them a deliverer. 
in the form of Ehud. It was God's work. He loves to save his people. And so with that in mind, let's dive straight in to the events of chapter 4 tonight, where we'll continue to see this pattern that is running through the book, both the people's failure, but also God's faithfulness. And as we look at this story tonight, and as you were listening, particularly to the last part of that story, it would be so easy to become fixated and possibly troubled by the dramatic events that we read of in this chapter. But tonight again, I want you to, to see that ultimately this is a story of God's salvation. It's a story of the Lord's rescue, and that's how we should understand the events that we've been reading about this evening. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story tonight and this chapter under some headings that I have unapologetically borrowed from a scholar who I've already mentioned in this series, Dale Ralph Davis, because I think that his headings on this chapter are really helpful in understanding the bigger story that's going on here. So, the first of those headings is the need for salvation, because tonight we, we pick up where we left off last time. And if you look right at the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1, you see this recurring tragic cycle. So, that we're told after Ehud died, and remember that Ehud was the, the great hero last week, and you remember what he did in dispatching the king who was giving God's people so much trouble. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I guess the, the phrase of note there, and the phrase that is especially tragic, is the phrase once again, that we're now beginning to see a pattern emerge, that we're beginning to see that God's people, the children of Israel, are serial offenders, that they keep falling back into their evil ways. And once again, the problem is the problem of their eyes. Remember that one of the ways of understanding the story or the book of Judges is that it is a story of eyes, their eyes and God's eyes. So, that God was looking on the whole time, and people were doing evil in His eyes, but the people, they made it up as they went along. They decided what was right and wrong. And yet, very clearly, we're told they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The specific evil was idolatry, so that when you see that phrase turning up in the book of Judges, that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it relates to Baal worship. That's what is especially going on with God's people, that they have given themselves over to the worship of false gods, the gods of Baal. And when we understand that definition of evil in this verse and in this book, it could lead to complacency for us, because we probably imagine that that kind of activity is reserved for God's people then, that today in the church, there's no way that we would be people who would be guilty of idolatry. We're not bowing down to funny statues. We're not deciding that instead of worshiping the Lord, we'll go off to a different place or a different temple 
and worship a different kind of God. But remember that when we understand what idolatry is all about, when we understand that idolatry is giving anyone or anything greater allegiance than God, suddenly we realize that idolatry is actually our problem. It is our sin as well, because we do that day in, day out, in, in lots of different ways. And so, this recurring pattern continues, and here's the result of their evil in verse 2. So, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So, once again, God's people find themselves under the rule of a foreign king as a result of their sin. And it's notable that in that verse, it says that the Lord sold them. It's not a case of the Lord giving them over to this king. No, it says that the Lord sold them to that king. And it seems like an apt punishment that if they do not want the Lord to be their master, then God will sell them to another master. That's really what's going on in that verse. And as a result of it, there is a great need for salvation. There is such a need for God's rescue in this situation. We imagine that the need is because of verse 2, that what they really need is to be delivered from the hands of Jabin, but actually the greater need for rescue comes about because of verse 1. It comes about because of their continued rebellion against the Lord and all of the problems that come with it. Now, just before we move on, let's, let's think for a moment about this recurring pattern of sin. And you'll note in verse 1 that it happened after Ehud died. Ehud became a great hero of the people. He was clearly identified as being a judge, as being a leader of the people, and, and his authority would have given some restraint to what was going on. But it seems that when the, the restraint was removed, then all of the problems just started up again because really the people's hearts had not been changed. And I think that's a real challenge for us here tonight is the only reason that you avoid particular sin because of the influence or the, the leadership or the pressure of other people in your life. Now, it's good that we have the influence of others. It's good that we encourage one another in pursuing godly living. That's why fellowship is so important. That's why tonight is so important, and it's so good for us to be here. But if that is the only thing that keeps us from doing certain things, then it indicates that what's going on in our life has no real substance. It indicates a lack of genuine internal work by the Lord. And so, we need to ask the Lord to give us a new and a changed heart. So, the need for salvation then, the, the next heading is the source of salvation. And at this point in the story, we are introduced to one of the great double acts of Scripture, Deborah and Barak. 
judges, the judges, these leaders of God's people, that's a fairly loose title given to them. Remember that they gave leadership in a variety of ways. Some of them were military leaders. Some of them were moral and spiritual leaders. And it's really interesting that in what was such a patriarchal, male-dominated society that Deborah is very much the leading partner here. If you look down through verses 4 and 5, you see that it was Deborah who was leading Israel. Verse 5, that she held court, so she settled disputes between people in the absence of a king. And her key role is identified in verse 4, that she was a prophetess. So, she both received and then shared God's Word with other people. And it's Deborah who takes the initiative here. She commissions Barak to lead an army against a man who is a really big problem for the Israelites. His name is Sisera, and he is the commander of the Canaanite army. And we get the background to this guy in verse 3. If you look at that verse again, we're told of Sisera that he had 900 iron chariots, and he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So, Canaan was the great military power at this time. It's a bit like the Russians as they, they ruled into Ukraine. There are actually lots of parallels. There's superior numbers and firepower, and they were making the lives of the people an absolute misery. And it was specifically, and this is what we need to know and, and understand all the way through or look at this chapter, it was ultimately because of Sisera that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And Deborah tells Barak that between them, they will get rid of this problem, that she will do the job of delivering Sisera into his reach, of bringing him into a vulnerable position. And then Barak and his men are the guys who will finish the job off and get rid of this man once and for all. But I want you to look again at Barak's response in verse 8. He said to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Sounds like when people are arranging to go out somewhere, you know, that it can be, oh, well, I'll go if you go, but I don't want to go on my own. But this is something much more profound that's going on here. And it really points to the, the influence and the charisma of Deborah as a leader, that somehow Barak will feel safer. He will feel more blessed. He will feel more able to do what he's been called to do if she is going alongside him. But Barak's mistake is relying on and thinking that a person will make all the difference in this situation. And the application for us tonight is that big question, do we put our trust in other people rather than the Lord? Especially in the work and the witness of the church, do we fall into that trap? Oh, well, if only we had this minister or if only we had that person involved in that work, or it would be great if we got this family in, or if we got that person back. 
that we can become fixated on people, on particular people, in ministry and in witness in our church. But here's the result of Barak not trusting and not obeying. Look at verse 9, and, and Deborah says to him, that's okay, very well, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And I do not want to be offensive for one moment tonight, but in this culture, at this time, for that to be said, that was a bit of a punch in the mouth for Barak. No, you're not going to get the credit for this. A woman will be remembered for this. A woman will get the credit for what is about to happen here. And you might be inclined to think, and maybe Barak at the time thought that the woman would be Deborah herself, but this is Deborah prophesying. This is Deborah understanding, given these words by the Lord, what will come about, that Jael would take down Sisera, as we'll see later on in the chapter, in verses 17 to 22. And I want you to know and see that there is something really significant in this chapter. Remember that this is a patriarchal, male-dominated society. There is no getting around that. That was what Israel would have been like at this time. And yet, in this chapter, the Lord uses two strong and clever women to bring about a great victory. And what that ultimately would do is it would take the focus of Barak so that at the end of all of this, the people would not be going, isn't Barak amazing? Isn't he our great hero and our great deliverer and our great leader? But instead, the glory would go to the Lord. And again, I think we can apply this to ourselves here in our church this evening, that we, we understand that it is God who brings rescue, that it is Christ who ultimately goes about the business of building His church. And if we understand that, it will then prevent jealousy of others, that in the life of the church, we'll not be going around and saying, well, look at what they're doing, and, 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 and here's what I'm doing, and probably people recognize Him more, or they, they see what she's doing, that that all just evaporates away when we understand who it is that is helping us in this church. And it also prevents jealousy of other congregations, which is a good message for a minister to hear, as well as a congregation, that we're not always looking over our shoulder and saying, oh, but look at what they're doing, or, or look at the way they're doing this thing, that it is God who is at work. It is the Lord Jesus who promises to build His church. So, do we put our trust in other people rather than in the Lord? That's a great danger for us. Well, when it comes to Deborah, as a prophetess, as a godly woman, she is really clear about where their rescue will come from. She knows what will be the source of their salvation. So, hear her words to Barak again in verse 14, and they are firm words, go, 
This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? It's all about Him. And what a danger for us that we would come to rely on particular individuals, that we would come to think that they and they alone can lead us or can enable us to do the work of the Lord. And what a greater danger that we would continue to give credit to other people or that we would give credit to ourselves for our salvation when that salvation is found in Christ alone. So, the source of salvation. But then really quickly, the next heading is the details of salvation. And I want you to look again at verse 11, because it's a verse that seems to be out of place in this chapter. It certainly breaks up the flow of the story, and you think, well, what's that all about? Why lob that in in the middle of this chapter, which is telling a completely different story? But let's quickly consider this verse. There we're introduced to another person called Heber the Kenite, and that's his tribe. And it seems that he has fallen out with the other members of his tribe, so much so that he has moved away to another place. He's shifted his tent. You could say he's moved home, and he's gone away from the rest of his tribe. And as you look at that verse, and if you were to read the chapter later on and you came to that verse, you could well wonder, well, what's that got to do with anything? It seems so irrelevant and and a strange detail to, to throw in there. But it all becomes clear when we come to verse 17. Because it is this man, Heber's wife, Jael, who has such a big role in this story. It's she who kills Sisera, the army commander, who's oppressed God's people in such a terrible way. So, let's see what's going on here. And we could say that it is the details of salvation that the only reason that Sisera goes to that particular tent and thinks that he'll be okay and lets his guard down enough in order that he can be killed is because earlier on, Heber, the owner of this tent, becomes friendly with Sisera's boss. They, They form an alliance. And so, these seemingly inconsequential events this verse that you kind of wonder, what's it doing in there? It suddenly begins to make sense that these are the events that the Lord ordered and He used to bring about His salvation of His people, to bring about His great rescue. And that's the thing about our God, that He works in the seemingly small things to bring about His purposes for the good of His people. And at times, we see that in our own lives. I know that many of you can testify to that. Why did that happen? Why did this take place? Why did I end up here and not over there? Why did this not work out in the way that I expected it to? And then later, with hindsight, we see God's hand at work in our lives, bringing about His purposes for our good. And don't we see that 
in the ultimate story of salvation? Don't we see that in what happened to the Lord Jesus? So that later on, again with hindsight, Peter on the day of Pentecost, we, we often come back to these words in Acts 2, verse 23. He says of Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This was God's plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I hope that as you see, as you read the details of salvation in this chapter, that it encourages you that once again we see the steps that the Lord will go to to rescue His people, that He loves to do that. And that it will also give us an understanding that, that your life, your service to the Lord, it really matters. It does count. It counts in ways that you cannot imagine and in ways that you will not understand this side of eternity. So, be faithful in doing what the Lord has called you to do. But the final heading, and very, very quickly, and the final heading could be described as the problem of salvation, but notice that that word problem is in quotes there, because this is how some people might regard a chapter of Scripture like this. Because again, like chapter 3, the rescue of God's people comes about through a daring act of violence, and in such a violent world, and this is. That could be troublesome for some people who are reading this text. Look at what happens here. In verse 15, God hands the people a great victory, and again, be sure of it that it is God who brings it about. We're told in verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. So now, this guy Sisera is on the run, and he goes to the one place in this hostile territory where he believes he'll be okay. Remember that alliance that had been formed between his king and this guy Heber. So, he thought, I'll go to the tent of his wife. I'll be safe there. And he clearly believes that he was safe. He was exhausted, but he was also relaxed enough that he could fall asleep in that tent, believing that he would be okay. But here's the outcome. And let's actually look at these words in verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the pegs through his temple into the ground, and he died, which is pretty grisly stuff, isn't it? What are we to make of this? We think about Jael's deception, and it was deception. We think about the friendly relations, the alliance that had been formed between Jabin the king of Hazor, uh, and this guy Heber, and it seems that that was overturned and abused. We think about the fact that in this culture, it was customary to show strangers hospitality, not to kind of bladder their head with a, a tent peg. It wasn't the done thing. And so, as we come to a story like this, 
Some people would just ignore it. They would fast forward or they would flick on a couple of pages in their Bible and say, yeah, that's not really a part of the Bible for me. Some people would very nobly point out that there's a difference between what the Bible reports and what the Bible recommends. And they would say, so, you know, this is really just the Bible reporting it as it is. It's giving us the facts here. It's not saying one way or the other that was a good thing to do or that was a bad thing to do. It leaves that up to us, which all sounds very noble until you get to the following chapter, and let's turn to it as we end. Because Deborah, the prophetess, and that's what she was speaking God's Word, she was really clear about what Jael did. She knew where she stood on this incident. Look with me, please, at chapter 5 and verses 24 to 26. And Deborah, if you excuse the pun, nails her colors to the mast. She says, most blessed of women be Jael. She's basically saying, good on you. Her hand reached for the tent peg her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. And this is a song of celebration. And it's also a song where the angel of the Lord is mentioned back in verse 23. And so, we get that sense that this is God speaking through His prophetess, that ultimately this is his verdict. And honestly, as we finish off, I don't think there needs to be any problem for us. Remember that Sisera was the military leader of such a terrible and cruel regime that made life miserable for God's people. So, if you go right the way back to verse 3 in chapter 4, we're told that he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Imagine 20 years of that kind of oppression. And when we go to Deborah's song in the following chapter, chapter 5 and verse 30, Deborah's song talks about how Sisera and his men, how they raped and plundered the Israelites. So, again, such parallels with the Russians in Ukraine and those awful events that we're seeing. And as a result of Jael's actions, the result is summarized right at the end of chapter 5. Look at how that chapter ends. Then the land had peace for 40 years. So, as we finish off, what should you take away from this passage? Well, I would say don't dwell too much on the action because our study tonight and the inclusion of this chapter in the Bible is not for us to have some kind of morality talk shop about the rightness or the wrongness of a specific action. No, instead, reflect on how God loves to save His people. Think again about the lengths that He goes to in order to save His people. And our minds turn to a horrific act of violence that secured our salvation. Our minds turn to hands 
and the feet that were pierced by pegs so that you and I could be saved. And we say tonight, hallelujah, what a Savior. We're going to 